0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. Today is Thursday the 8th of December 2016. My name is Brendan O'Brien and this week's episode is Chasing Gravity Waves, Aliens and FRBs from the Iconic Dish in Parks, Part 2. When we talk again with John Sarcassian who is the operations scientist at the CSIRO Parks Radio Observatory. Each week we have a special guest from the fields of radio astronomy and optical astronomy. We'll have a news roundup, a history and theory session from Nadezhda to wrap up each show. We'll hear about what's up in the observable sky. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Nadezhda.
1: Hello, Brendan.
0: Well, Nadezhda, we started this podcast about six months ago, not quite, but almost, and the Earth has travelled halfway around its orbit, and back then when we first met you, you were having hot days and we were in the single figures, so our position should be reversed now. Yesterday here in southeast Australia, we had 33 degrees Celsius, What's the temperature over in Tver in northeastern Russia?
1: You're very much correct,
0: Brendan. Our positions
1: have reversed. Right now in Tver, it is snowing and minus 7 degrees centigrade. And we are expecting minus 12 overnight.
0: Well, stay warm, Nadezhda. What have you got for us this week?
1: I have been listening to you describing the properties of stars, and I thought it would be a good time to talk about stellar evolution. Fantastic.
0: The mic is all yours, Nadezhda. Thank you, Brandon. Spasiba.
1: So this week we will talk of general terms, and next week we will examine the details in the famous Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. So... In general, everything evolves. Now, that upsets religious fundamentalists, but that's just the way reality operates. Everything evolves. Proto-galaxies, galaxies. galaxies, Proto-stars, stars. stars, Proto-planets, planets. And on Earth, the geology, the plants and animals all evolve. Today, we will look at how stars evolve and change over the course of time. All stars, you see, are born as protostars from condensing and collapsing clouds of gas and dust, often called nebula or molecular clouds. And over some millions of years, these protostars achieve a state of equilibrium becoming what is known as main sequence stars, where the outward nuclear fusion pressure inside the star is equal to the gravitational force trying to collapse the star in on itself. Now there are many different types of stars, small yellow dwarfs like our sun, red giants, blue giants, brown dwarfs to name but a few. The determining factor of a star's evolutionary path is totally dependent on the mass of the star. A truly massive star may only live a few million years, while the smallest and least massive stars can live trillions of years, which is many times longer than the current age of the universe. So let us have a look at the extremes In the case of stellar evolution and start with our Sun which is on the lower end of the spectrum. Our Sun has, by definition, one solar mass and will live 10 billion years. Currently, it is about halfway through its lifespan. So, at the smallest end, at the very end of the spectrum, we have a star which is less than one-tenth the mass of our sun and will live up to several trillion years. These are designated red dwarf stars and are very numerous in our Milky Way. They are small and dim, but with good instruments we know for sure they are by far the most common type of star. An obvious example is Proxima Centauri, only about four light years away, which Dr. Elizabeth Tasker told us about way back then in episode 10. At the other end, we have massive, short-lived stars, the rock stars of the universe. These stars are much rarer. They can be 60 times more massive than our sun, but only live about 3 million years. An example of one of these supermassive stars is Westerlund 126, which is a red hypergiant. It is one of the largest known stars discovered so far and is approximately 50. 1500 solar radii, which means if we placed it at the center of our solar system, its surface would be beyond the orbit of Jupiter. Westerland, one twenty six, is about eleven thousand light years from Earth, and its surface temperature is only about three thousand degrees, making it much cooler than our sun. But its huge size makes it around 380,000 times brighter than our Sun. It has lots of other interesting characteristics and is a great target for radio astronomy if you want to look it up. So that's it, Brendan. The big die young. And next week we will look at the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram and understand how stars evolve and why some just fade away. Some go supernova and some will turn into neutron stars, pulsars, and black holes.
0: Thanks, Nadezhda. That's fabulous.
1: Paka. До Vidania Brennan.
0: So, what's up in the sky this week? For our Southern Hemisphere listeners, Mercury sets just after sunset, with very bright Venus setting at about 11pm, then Mars following down the ecliptic to set about midnight. If you have a telescope or good binox, Venus will look like a tiny half moon because it is only about at half phase, meaning because of its relative position to us, we can see only half of its illumination from the Sun. The December night sky provides a great view of distant galaxies. However, for those who like to go outside after their evening meal, the moon will wash out a lot of the fainter stars. But a nice telescopic and binocular object will be the Andromeda galaxy, which is 2.5 million light-years from Earth and at magnitude 3.4. You'll find it just 10 degrees above the horizon and is our closest large neighbouring galaxy, Andromeda. It's a beautiful spiral galaxy, also known as M31 or NCG244. You'll do well if you can get away from light pollution in a spot with a low northern horizon. In binoculars, Andromeda looks like an elongated fuzzy patch, and through a small telescope you can start to make out the galaxy's spiral structure and its elliptical nature. Looking south, the familiar southern cross and pointers are very low near the horizon in December, but nearby lies the peculiar variable star Ida Carinae. It looks like a faint star to the naked eye, but is in fact two stars in orbit around each other in the constellation of Karina, the keel. Ida Carinae is set to explode any day now, and we'll be dedicating a whole episode on Ida Carinae. In the meantime, look it up. It's a truly awesome phenomenon. December is also the best time to see the large Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud. Get out and have a look. Now, a quick word about the upcoming Geminids meteor shower. The Geminids meteor shower on December 14, next week, is often our best meteor shower for the Southern Hemisphere. The Geminids are an unusual meteor shower in that their parent body is 3200 Phaetron, an asteroid rather than a comet. It is speculated, though, that Phaeton is actually a gassed-out comet, and so the debris that makes up the Geminids may still be cometary particles. The meteor shower rates are increasing each year, which suggests that Phaeton might be breaking up a little. The shower peaks on December 14, but this year that also coincides with a full moon. So if you go out between 2 and 4am next Wednesday, you'll only see a few of the brightest. But still should be fun for those as astrophotographers who are after some full moon shots. Now for our northern hemisphere observers, Mercury sets just after sunset, but the moon is three-quarter full, washing out many stars, but half-phase Venus is still dominating the western sky. In the UK, for instance, this Friday, the sun sets at 4pm, and the three-quarter moon doesn't set until 1.30am Saturday morning. So for those who don't work on Saturday, get out under some dark skies after one30 on Saturday morning to catch Jupiter and its moon. Moons rising in the east, and Procyon, the little dog star, high in the southern sky above and to the left of the brightest star, Sirius. You'll have to rug up, though. The star Procyon is nearing the end stages of its lifespan, evolving from a normal mature star to the inflated giant stages of old age. Most main sequence stars spend the large majority of their lifetimes converting hydrogen into helium. As the available hydrogen runs out, a star grows larger and its surface becomes cooler. Currently, Procyon is designated as a F5 star, which makes it a lot bigger than our sun, twice as heavy, I should say massy, and as we progress through this podcast series, we will be getting more precise in our terminology. Procyon is eight times brighter, but only lives for three billion years, and Procyon is heading towards the end of its life. In a few more million years, Procyon will become a red giant star, much larger and brighter than our Sun, and this is also where our Sun is heading. Being only 11.4 light years away, Procyon is one of our nearest stellar neighbors. Procyon is a double star with a faint white dwarf companion that is not visible except in telescopes. The white dwarf Procyon b is further along in its evolution than Procyon and in fact has reached the end of a line. It no longer produces stable hydrogen fusion and is considered a dead star. The same reasonable assumption is that these two stars formed at the same time. So the fact that Procyon B has already become a stellar corpse indicates that it originally must have been slightly more massive than Procyon. More massive stars tend to burn their fuel hotter and faster, causing them to burn out sooner. So, yet another double star system. And our listeners will be realising that single stars are the exception rather than the rule. And now our feature interview. John Sarkissian, in Part 1 in Episode 17, told us about his inspirational viewing of the moon landing in 1969, how he went on to study physics, his visit and work in observatories in Armenia and the former USSR in the late 80s, his work on the Galileo mission to Jupiter, and the constant upgrading of the Parkes dish, so that it now has exceeded its planned operational lifetime by 35 years and is also 10,000 times more sensitive than the initial instrument. We finished this episode discussing Australia's role in the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, and the CSIRO's SCAP Pathfinder instrument. Here, in part two, we revisit the CSIRO Park's observatory, known affectionately as the DISH, since it relayed those iconic Apollo television images that showed Neil Armstrong taking one small step. And we speak again with John Sarkissian, the operations scientist. Now, we continue our discussion and move on to look at the spider dipoles that make up the Murchison Widefield Array in remote Western Australia. So let's fast forward to that point.
2: I've seen photos of spiders. Okay, the, the spiders are called well, dipoles. They're just little low-frequency antennas, if you like, as part of the SKA, the big instrument that we're building. Because we missed out on hosting the the main array, as a consolation, almost, if you like, and we were given the low-frequency array, which will be observing up, down around a few hundred megahertz frequency, much lower frequencies. And so, but for those, you don't need any moving antennas and so on. You just put a whole lot of dipoles on the ground and link them together, and you can phase them all together to point to any position you want on the sky yep. and so that's called the low frequency array and that'll be just adjacent to our ASCAP array of those 36 antennas and we'll be ramping that up in the next few years also in the phase one construction of the SKA. so even though the main array will be built in South Africa the low frequency array will be built here in Australia at our preferred site um, where our ASCAP antennas are.
0: And we don't like making predictions, John, but we can certainly predict there's going to be some unexpected discoveries made with this new technology.
2: Oh, it will. Almost. You can, I won't say guarantee it, but it is expected because in the history of astronomy, in the history of science, period, whenever you observe in a new parameter space for the first time, you make discoveries. And that parameter could be, for example, a different frequency. It could be a higher magnification or it could be greater sensitivity or higher time resolution or whatever it happens to be. Because the SKA and ASCAP and even the low frequency array will be extremely sensitive instruments where we'll be sampling, if you like, an entirely new parameter space. And we're pretty confident that we will be making discoveries. Now, what they are, we don't know, but we're confident that we're going to find something that we didn't know of before because, you know, things are always lurking in the parameter space. If you're the first to observe in that particular parameter space, you'll be the one making the the discoveries and then everyone else can then follow up. And so the idea of the SKA with its great sensitivity is to look all the way back to the earliest years when the universe first became transparent to the radiation when it was around 300,000 years old and so on. We want to know what the universe was like at that time. But also, its great sensitivity means that we'll be able to do in other galaxies like Andromeda for example, the Andromeda galaxy, M33, what we can do in our own galaxy with our current instruments. You know? So we'll be discovering pulsars and other things in the neighbouring galaxies that we currently can't do because they're just too far away and the signals are just too weak. But with SKA being much more powerful, more sensitive instrument, we should be able to observe those things in other galaxies. Of course, for the objects in our own galaxy, we'll be able to do it even better, see it with even higher strength, even greater sensitivity and so on. So it's an exciting project, which is why we've been pushing it for the last 20 years or so to get it. So finally, things are starting to come together, and that's really great. When I first started here, one of the first roles I had here was to investigate the sites around Australia for the best location to put this thing. We wanted a very radio-quiet area, and I did some computer modelling of various uh, transmitters around Australia to find where the most radio-quiet place in Australia was, and we pretty much settled on the Murchison Shire in Western Australia, because it is extremely remote and very, very radio-quiet, and that's where we're building everything. So to finally see things actually being built there is real satisfying
0: it's fantastic and a a lovely segue to the idea that we get unexpected discoveries with almost from the moment that LIGO was turned on they discovered gravity waves now you're doing a bit of gravity wave research with pulsars at parks can you tell us a little bit about that and whether you see it as heralding a new science of gravitational wave
2: astronomy Yes, throughout history, everything we've learned about the universe has come from the electromagnetic radiation, you know, originally just in the visible wavelengths. And then in the, about a century or so ago, we started using radio and, and detected cosmic signals from beyond the Earth. And then with the space age, we went to ultraviolet, infrared, gamma ray, X-ray, and, and so on. But the only way we could get information about the rest of the universe was through the electromagnetic radiation from the electromagnetic spectrum. But with gravitational waves, it gives us the opportunity to, to study the universe in an entirely new regime, away from the electromagnetic spectrum to the gravitational wave spectrum, if you like. And Einstein's theory of general relativity predicts that when massive objects are accelerated, they will emit gravitational waves. And as they emit those waves, energy is taken out of the system and gets dispersed throughout the universe. So if you could figure out a way to measure those gravitational waves and detect them, then you can actually study phenomena in the universe that you can't do with electromagnetic radiation. So for example, if you have two supermassive black holes orbiting about each other in the centers of galaxies, two colliding galaxies, then that would take several weeks or months or even years to orbit about each other. So the frequency of that gravitational radiation would be very low, periods would be very long. So it would be months or years in in periods. But if you have black holes or neutron stars orbiting much closer together, they're spinning around quite rapidly, orbiting about each other. So the frequency of those gravitational waves would be much higher the period's much shorter. And of course, at the moment when say two black holes suddenly coalesce, get sucked into each other gravitationally, then you'll get an extremely high frequency gravitational waves being emitted. And so you can study different phenomena just at, at different wavelengths, if you like, of that gravitational wave spectrum. LIGO was designed to study the high frequency gravitational waves, like the moment that a two black holes were suddenly coalesced and formed a, a more massive black hole. Yep. And so about this time last year, actually, September. Last year, when they upgraded it to its final sensitivity and switched it all on, two days later, they detected the coalescing of those two black holes. Um, And in that split second that the black holes coalesced, they radiated the equivalent of three solar masses in gravitational energy that could be detected clear across the universe with their instrument. What we're trying to do here at Parks is detect the low-frequency gravitational waves, if you like. Okay. Uh, Long-period stuff. So, for example, it's where you have these two supermassive black holes in the centers of distant galaxies slowly orbiting about each other and emitting this long, sedate gravitational wave away from it. And we're doing that... Well, the way you try and detect gravitational waves is you try and see how space expands and contracts as the gravitational wave passes through your test instrument, if you yep. like. Okay. Yep. Gravitational waves are extremely weak. They have a strain of ten to the minus twenty or ten to the minus twenty one. By that we mean that the if the gravitational wave were to pass between, say, a one meter long ruler, then depending on whether it was a, a a peak or a trough, that that one metre ruler will expand and contract 10 to the minus 20, (laughs) the difference in its length. Yep. Okay. which on that scar would be a thousandth the diameter of a proton. Very, 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 very tiny expansion and contraction, okay? And so that's why with, with LIGO, they had to do really clever things with a four-kilometer-long arm, if you like, yep. with mirrors in a vacuum with lasers going back and forth and interfering with each other to try and detect the oscillations. It's extremely, extremely weak. But what we're trying to do here is we, we actually use pulsars, to try and detect the longer frequencies, gravitational waves. Pulsars are these really compact, dense remains of really massive stars that have exploded. They're only about 10 or so kilometers in diameter, but they have about one and a half times the sun's mass packed within that tiny volume. Yes. extremely dense, these incredibly powerful magnetic fields, hundreds of millions of times more powerful than the Earth's magnetic field that surrounds us now. And emanating out through the poles of the of these pulsar is a beam of energy. And as the star rotates, this beam sweeps out across space like a lighthouse, if you like. So if by chance the Earth lies in the direction of the beam, then each time it sweeps by, we detect it as a pulse of energy. It goes boop, boop. Yep hence the name Pulsar. But because these stars are so massive, they have incredible angular momentum, and so nothing's going to really slow them down very much, okay? They're very, very (laughs) stable. And so you can think of those pulses as being like ticks on a super accurate clock. Yes. If you're observing a pulsar and a gravitational wave were to pass between us and the pulsar, the space between us would actually expand and contract. Yep. And so that when it expands, it's further away from us, it'll take those pulses a few nanoseconds longer to reach us. Yes. If it contracts they'll actually arrive a few nanoseconds earlier than expected, okay? okay? So you should be able to see the oscillation of this pulsar moving away and towards us over time. And so if you can view about 20 or so pulsars distributed across the sky every two or three weeks or so, then over time you should be able to detect the fact that in one particular direction there's the pulsars are arriving sooner than expected and 90 degrees on either side. They should be delayed by the same amount. Yes. And so you can use use that to try and detect directly gravitational waves that you use the space between the earth and the pulsar as the rod if you like that long rod that with the two test points you know the pulsar on one and the earth on the other and measure the distance expanding and contracting between them very much like LIGO works you have the four kilometer long arms they expand and contract at 90 degrees to each other and so you can then use that to determine if a gravitational high frequency gravitational wave went through but because we have to observe pulsars over over several weeks or months, then we're more sensitive to the lower frequency, the longer period gravitational waves. Because we're studying supermassive black holes in the centres of colliding galaxies. LIGO is looking for the higher frequency gravitational waves where black holes are coalescing that instant before they coalesce. So um, you've got a sort of directional
0: different. radar there going, John. And does that mean that after you've done some detection and identified the direction, then you'll direct other instruments and look for the source? of those gravitational waves?
2: Yeah, unfortunately directionality is not very good. You can have a general idea in what part of the sky it's coming from, but not enough to say, "Oh, it's coming from that particular star or that galaxy." Okay. It hasn't quite reached that point. Difficult to actually to be able to do that. But you will be able to to say, for example, say, "Okay, we're detecting this many supermassive black holes in the universe." That tells yeah. you something about the universe. Okay. Uh, and and the same with the coalescing black holes. You know, if you're detecting two or three a year, that tells you how numerous they are up to a certain sensitivity. But what we're also hoping to do is to use that information to test the various competing theories of gravity. Einstein's theory predicted a certain level of signal strength, if you like, other theories have predicted different signal strength. And so we've already been able to, from our observations, exclude some theories of gravity. They, because if they are correct, we should have been able to detect the, the presence of gravitational waves already. We've been doing this now since 2004. So we've been going for, what, 12, 13 years. And so we haven't detected the gravitational waves yet, the background gravitational waves yet. But we have been able to use it to exclude other competing theories of gravity. So to date, Einstein's theory is holding up still there valid LIGO's observations confirmed it beautifully <laughs> okay so we were hoping before LIGO made their announcement that our observations it's called a pulsar timing array yep and we were hoping that the park's pulsar timing array will be the first to directly detect gravitational waves. so they picked us at the post <laughs> we think that we're a, a few years short of building up enough observations to get the sensitivity down to be able to say definitively that we've detected it you know, but then again, we're doing it on the cheap um, con- comparison. You know, is a, a billion-dollar project where we spend maybe a few hundred thousand a year on on ours.
0: That's really sensational. Now, on a lighter note, yeah. can you tell us about FRBs and peritons
2: and microwave ovens? Yeah. Well, FRBs were discovered here in parks. Again, in the course of the the multi-beam surveys, the pulsar surveys, we recorded a lot of data. And in 2007, Duncan Lorimer, a British um, astronomer, was sifting through some of our archive data dating from 2001. Yes. Looking for giant pulses from pulsars. Yep. And he came across a, a single really powerful pulse, but it was only a single pulse. It lasted just a millisecond or two. And very very strong, but it was highly dispersed. Dispersion is when the electromagnetic signal travels through a dielectric medium, if you like. Its velocity will change with wavelength yes. or frequency, and so you see the signal being smeared out with frequency, if you like. It's called frequency swept. The more that 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 the, the signal is dispersed, then it indicates that the more distant this object must be because it's travelled longer and had more time to be yes. to be dispersed, and so. He found this this object that's, that suggested that it was coming from extragalactic sources. It was extremely strong, but it was in the, in a single observation from two thousand and one. So when he notified us in two thousand and seven, we observed that same position again for many, many days and never saw another signal. And so it was called, dubbed the, the, the Lorimer Burst as a result, but it remained a, a mystery until about 2010 when some other astronomers sifting through some archive data found more of these things, and they also found it in new observations. And again, they were highly dispersed, and they indicated they were coming from very, very distant extragalactic sources, billions of light years away. But their origin was a total mystery. We're pretty confident that they're coming from extragalactic sources. Because we're using the multi-beam receiver, we're looking at 13 points simultaneously. If it was some local radio interference, like, say, a microwave oven or something, for example, we would see it in every one of those beams because the instrument will illuminate the signal in all of those little receivers in the multi-beam receiver. Yep. And so but because we see coming from just single beams on the sky, it indicates that the signal must be coming from the direction that beam is pointing and not the one adjacent to it and so on. Yes. So we're pretty confident these things are cosmic in origin and they're very, very distant. Okay. However, during the course of that, astronomers again sifting through our archive data detected Signals that, that mimicked the what we call all these fast radio bursts, yes, in very closely, but they we could see them in all beams the, the multi beam receiver, which indicated there had to be local interference.
0: Okay,
2: uh, yep. So we had no idea where what instrument was creating because we were detecting at one point four gigahertz at the twenty one centimeter hydrogen line, yep, which is what the multi beam was designed to detect. So we had no idea what it was. But one clue was they seemed to be clustered around lunchtime <laughs> uh, and dinner time. And we're thinking, geez, you know, either the stars operate with civil time or it's something that's operating. And so our first suspicion was microwave ovens, but the microwave ovens operated 2.45 gigahertz, you know, almost double the the frequency of detecting it. And when we tested it, we could never see the, we could never reproduce it. So we said, you know, it's not the microwave oven. So it remained a mystery for many years. But then in December of 2014, just under two years ago, we installed a new real-time radio frequency antenna here at Parks that would scan the the site every 20 minutes and update the data every minute. And it just so happened that in January, just one month later, astronomers here had developed some new software that allowed them to detect these FRBs in near real-time. So when something happened, they could be alerted very quickly and then try and follow up with other instruments if they can. Yep. But on three successive days, they found these peritons appeared, again, around lunchtime <laughs> on each day. And we thought, geez, that's all right. So when we looked at the data from the real-time radio interference antenna, you could see the micro-, the signature 2.45 gigahertz of the microwave ovens come on and then switch off again you know, a minute or two later, which seemed to coincide with the time you'd heat your, your, your lunch and so on again. So we thought, that's curious. So we tested it again, and we still couldn't reproduce these peritons. Yep. Peritons, these things were dubbed peritons by Sarah Burke, who was a PhD student who found these things because it's named after some mythical creature that mimicked some other creature or something. Right. So it was a nice name. So it sort of stuck. But we couldn't reproduce these peritons. And so no matter what we tried, I was out there with the microwave ovens, turning them on and off. We could see them come on, but no peritons. And then a colleague of mine, Dr. John Reynolds, had a sleepless night thinking about this. And he thought, what would happen if you were to pop open the microwave oven door while it was still operating? In other words, you didn't wait for it to stop as you normally do. You're not supposed to do that, but you know some people do. They're very hungry. They can't wait. So I said, okay, we've got an hour of free time that evening. Let's try it. So when we went in there, I started it up, and then before the, it had finished, I popped open the oven door, and bang, we saw peritons. Yep. And then every time after that I'd do it, we saw peritons, peritons, because, oh, God, it's the bloody microwave ovens. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we found the cause. And it's to do with the way, you know, as a safety thing, the, the, the ovens are designed to immediately shut down the magnetron, the microwave magnetron, so that, you know, you don't irradiate the people Yes. Who are, who are hungry. And so somehow in that process of shutting down for safety reasons, it produces this frequency swept signal that looks like a dispersed FRB signal. And that's why you've set up at Murchison. Exactly. That's why we don't want people visiting there, because as soon as people you introduce people, you introduce interference. Because in the Murchison, it's bloody hot in summer. It can get up to 50 degrees. You'll need air conditioners. You have to feed them. You have to communicate with them. Even the cars that they use to get there, or the planes or whatever, will all produce radio interference.
0: And you've got to give them microwave ovens too, John. Well, (laughs) if you want to cook things.
2: And so we found that. And so we felt, you know, even though it was, we're not hopeless people, we could see the humor in the situation. So we wrote the paper to explain the the, the source of it, not so much to cover us, but to let people know that if they see that, get rid of their microwave oven so it doesn't confuse you from the real source that we're trying to find, the FRBs, because we think they are The FRBs are real. Since we removed all the microwave ovens on site, we're still seeing them. And in fact, all but I think two or three of the the FRBs discovered have been found here, including the very first one. So in many ways, it's an extremely satisfying situation because we have no idea what's producing these FRBs. They could be coalescing neutron stars, you know, or an exploding something somewhere. could even be SETI signals for all we know. We have no idea. Yes. And so, but because we're only just starting to, to investigate this and other observatories around the world are building new new instruments to try and detect these it's incredible to see a new area of of research you know being born and developing before our very eyes and you know you'll get these little like a little child you know as it gets up it'll fall down and get back up again and fall again but eventually it'll run so these peritons are like the child falling down and so on okay Um, you've got to go through these things to learn to eliminate things and keep your mind focused on the the real target. So more evidence will accrue and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to finally figure out what these things are.
0: Can you tell us what a typical week looks like for you at parks, John?
2: A typical week'm not sure if there is such a thing <laughs> um, well working at parks you know, there's a lot of things that we end up doing sometimes you know we'll have a major shutdown where we have to bring receivers down to refurbish them we have to constantly repair the telescope we have new observing programs beginning that need to be supported we might have a big publicity thing going on especially when there's a new discovery done we get inundated with media too wanting to know more about the what we've discovered and so on so but for me a typical thing you know we we, we work normal business hours here but because of remote observing the telescope we operate 24 hours a day seven days a week we do have regular shutdowns during the week um, for a few hours so we can do essential maintenance and preventive maintenance so to stop problems from occurring to begin with In the past, astronomers would visit the telescope and would be based here at Parks for for a week or two doing their observations. Nowadays, many astronomers would just do it over the internet, just log in and and do their observations. We'll have staff here to look after things in case something goes wrong. Sounds
0: like you've got a fantastic team there, John.
2: Oh it is it's all, It all depends on Tim It takes a team To get it to, to work Everyone has their role And they, they do their bit to, to make it work The Park's Telescope Is one of the Olympian sites Of world science And we're very proud Of what we do here And we want to Continue doing it To the best of our ability It's arguably Still Even after 55 years Arguably The finest single dish Radio telescope In the world We're still doing Great observations Great discoveries with it Doing great science World class science It was the very first Big science instrument in Australia, and it's still the most successful and most productive scientific instrument in Australia's history. There's, you know, at least another 10, 20 or more years ahead of it. It all depends on, you know, how much we can upgrade the telescope and so on. The telescope's 55 years old, but the only parts of the telescope that are that old and the concrete and steel it's made of, <laughs> and everything else is so new. So much of the telescope is so new. In many ways, it's a very young telescope. Um, we're still commissioning new instruments. Just this month, we began the break through listen project where we're searching for signs of extraterrestrial intelligence elsewhere in the universe one minute say in the morning we might be doing listening for for signs of of extraterrestrial intelligence and then at lunchtime we'll switch to studying pulsar in the afternoon we'll be doing spectral line work and maybe at night we'll be doing vlbi events and and, and so on so there's Many, many different things that we, we do here. I particularly like those few odd occasions when we track spacecraft. They're short and sweet. We might plan a year to do it, and it's all over with in just a few hours and so on. I like to tell people we're a lucky dish, so whenever we support a space mission, it, it always succeeds.
0: Well, thank you very much, John Sarkissian, the operations scientist at Parks.
2: Thank you. It's been a great pleasure.
0: Here is the Astrophys News for the 8th of December 2016 from Science, published on the 2nd of December. A paper by B. Emonts and M. Lennart and 20 other researchers from Spain. They've published a paper in Science featuring their research into the spiderweb galaxy, which was initially discovered in the late 1990s and is actually now known to be a cluster of proto-galaxies more than 10 billion light-years from Earth. Proto-galaxies, you say? Think baby galaxies. From the abstract, the authors say, The largest galaxies in the universe reside in galaxy clusters. The spiderweb galaxy is a massive galaxy in a distant proto-cluster, which is itself forming from a large reservoir of molecular gas. Our results support the notion that giant galaxies in clusters formed from extended regions of recycled gas at high redshift. The research paper continues with radio observations and analysis and concludes that while the biggest galaxies grew by cannibalizing smaller galaxies, they most likely started their existence in large reservoirs of cold, soupy gas. The astronomers estimated that this region of molecular gas totals more than 100 billion times the mass of the sun, and we love big numbers. Not only is this quantity of gas surprising, but the gas is also unexpectedly cold at about minus 200 degrees Celsius. Such cold molecular gas is the raw material for new stars. The carbon monoxide in this gas indicates it has been enriched by the supernova explosions of earlier generations of stars. The carbon and oxygen in the carbon monoxide was formed in the cores of stars that later exploded. The central proto-cluster galaxy has a supermassive black hole at its core which emits jets of relativistic particles visible in radio observations. These observations suggest the proto-cluster galaxies will eventually emerge and evolve into a single giant elliptical galaxy in the center of a cluster. This is quite a different scenario from what is happening in our local group of galaxies, which is part of a larger Virgo supercluster, where the largest galaxies in clusters grow by cannibalizing other galaxies. What these researchers have discovered is that in the spider web cluster, the giant galaxy is growing by simply feeding on the immense field of cold gas in which it is embedded. Now being 10 billion light years from Earth, this means we're seeing the cluster as it was when the universe was a mere 3 billion years old or so. So what technologies enabled this research? Galaxies and stars form from molecular hydrogen gas, But it's very hard to detect at this distance. But by targeting carbon monoxide, which is much easier to see using radio telescopes, this can act as a tracer gas for molecular hydrogen. For this research, the authors used 90 hours of observations from the Australia Telescope Compact Array, ATCA, and 8 hours from a Carl G. Jansky Very Large Array. The astronomers said that the ATCA observations revealed the total extent of a gas, and the Jansky VLA observations, much more narrowly focused, provided another surprise. Most of the cold gas was found not within the proto-galaxies, but instead between them. Astronomer Preshant Chekanathan of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, the NRAO, in Sirocco, New Mexico, said, This is a huge system, with this molecular gas spanning three times the size of our own Milky Way galaxy." It appears that this whole system eventually will collapse into a single gigantic galaxy and has already probably done so, but the light from that coalescence may not reach us for billions of years yet. I, for one, will be waiting up to see this as it happens. Very nice work that adds a very nice layer to our understanding of galactic evolution. Our next news report is from Jonathan Webb via BBC News. He's their science reporter. A network of nine radio telescopes dotted around the globe is set to take the first ever picture of a black hole's event horizon in 2017. The project is called Event Horizon Telescope and has completed most of its technical preparations as well as extensive theoretical calculations. By now you know well our love for big numbers and acronyms, so we are going to call this the EHT. This awesome project will focus on Sagittarius A, the black hole at the center of our very own Milky Way galaxy. Speaking at an astronomy conference in Florida, EHT team member Ferrielle Ozzell said all the elements were in place. She told BBC News, We're almost there, the phasing in of the instruments has been done, the receivers are in place, and the theoretical work has been done. There are quite a few challenges that need to be overcome to take a picture of a black hole. It's something that's extremely small in the sky, but what we're hoping Hoping for is a full array observation in early 2017. Supermassive though it may be, the heart of the Milky Way's black hole is not as big as you might think. The event horizon of Sagittarius A is just 24 million kilometres across, 17 times bigger than the Sun. But at 25,000 light years away, that makes it a pinprick. You really have to squint to see it. From the surface of the Earth, Professor Azel explained, takes up about as much of the sky as a CD sitting on the Moon. And surrounding this mysterious spherical frontier are roiling clouds of gas and dust which blaze with energy as they are sucked and squeezed furiously towards us, as Natalie Sommer explained to us two weeks ago in episode 20. These clouds are trouble for the EHT astronomers who want to peer closer than ever at the black hole in Sag A. One of their most important decisions was choosing which wavelength of light they would use. Radio waves were an obvious place to start because they are scattered much less by this material than visible or infrared light. Then, it took a lot of theoretical observations to settle on the specific wavelength of one3 millimeters, as Professor Azel explained. We have run upwards of a million simulations for many different configurations of what that gas might look like, and in all cases we think that the 1.3mm wavelength is the right choice to see down to the event horizon. It was an incredibly lucky coincidence, she added, that any wavelength at all was feasible, because as well as penetrating the black hole's dust cloud, Professor Azal and her colleagues need the hot gas right at the event horizon to shine brightly in this colour, which They believe it does. Finally, the light has to travel through the Earth's own atmosphere into the dishes of awaiting telescopes. 1.3mm fortunately fits that bill in every case. The nine stations enlisted to stare at Sagittarius A include the big dishes in Antarctica, Chile, Hawaii, Spain, Mexico and Arizona. Altogether, this makes what the team calls a virtual telescope the size of Earth. So what will this mammoth eye actually see? Hopefully it will look like a crescent. It won't look like a ring, Professor Azel said. This is because the glowing gas is spinning around the black hole and a dramatic Doppler effect should make the stuff moving towards the Earth appear much brighter. The rest of a ring will also emit, but what you will pick brightly up is a crescent. In fact, the picture that emerges from the EHT next year will put general relativity on the line again. Einstein's theory states that a mass, especially one as big as a black hole, bends space-time, and that curvature can be calculated mathematically. So the size of a shadow cast by Sagittarius A will either match what is predicted by general relativity, or it won't. We know exactly what general relativity predicts for that size, Professor Ozell said, making this observations what scientists call a null hypothesis test of a theory. So we'll be following this story closely and hopefully report a successful outcome in the new year. Seeing a black hole now, that's awesome. The following report is from researchers from the International Centre of Radio Astronomy Research, ICRA, with headquarters in West Australia. ICRA researchers believe that the universe has started its slow progress of ageing and may die in the next 10 billion years because energy levels in the universe are slowing. Well, I know mine are, so that's proof enough for me. By studying more than 20,000 galaxies, ICRA researchers have found that energy levels are falling and measuring not even half of what it was 2 billion years ago, signaling an aging Earth. Researchers from ICRA in West Australia used seven of the world's most powerful telescopes to examine galaxies at 21 different wavelengths, from the far ultraviolet to the far infrared. We used as many space and ground-based telescopes as we could to measure the energy output of over 200,000 galaxies across a broader wavelength range as possible, says Simon Driver, who heads the large gamma team. The initial observations were conducted using the Anglo-Australian Telescope in New South Wales and supporting observations were made by two orbiting space telescopes operated by NASA and another belonging to the ESA, the European Space Agency. It has been known since the late 1990s that the fact that the universe is slowly decreasing its radiation output but this work shows that it's happening across all wavelengths from the ultraviolet to the infrared. All the energy in the universe was created in the Big Bang, with some portion locked up as mass. Stars shine by converting mass into energy, as described by Einstein's famous equation E equals mc squared. The Gamma Study, Galaxy and Mass Assembly Project, sets out to map and model all the energy generated within a large volume of space today, and at different times in the past. While most of the energy sloshing around in the universe arose in the aftermath of the Big Bang, additional energy is constantly being generated by stars as they fuse elements like... Hydrogen and helium together, Simon Driver says. This new energy is either absorbed by dust as it travels through the host galaxy or escapes into intergalactic space and travels until it hits something such as another star, a planet or, very occasionally, a telescope mirror. The universe will decline from here on in, sliding gently into old age. The universe has basically sat down on the sofa, pulled up a blanket, and is about to nod off for an eternal doze, concludes Simon Driver. So there you go. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. And if that's not something to wait up for late, I don't know what is. That's it for Astrophys this week. See you next week. Radio Hawaii.